This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey. We have lost Joanna this week, but we have gained a very special guest in Andrew Garfield, the star of Hexall Ridge and Silence, recently nominated for a Golden Globe, who is going to tell us about his experiences on the awards campaign and in making two very different, but I think equally challenging movies with uh, Mel Gibson and Martin Scorsese. And what it's like to have two movies out there to promote at once and how he possibly keeps his head straight and his hair so gorgeous. But first, we're going to talk about the Golden Globes themselves and uh, what we learned from them, as well as a slew of other nominations this week. The BAFTAs, the PGAs. It's a busy time for awards, so we're going to dig into what we've learned from all that. So the Golden Globes were on Sunday night, which now, given everything that's happened in the world, feels like two years ago, but it was... About what do you mean? What's, what's happened? <laughs> just, just some news. <laughs> there weren't uh, even any... Never mind. Gonna... Speaking of Golden... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, go back to that time four days ago when we watched uh, Moonlight kind of pulled out a win at the very end, maybe when we had all given up hope. And then La La Land really swept the whole thing. They won seven statues, everything they were nominated for. Which is most the most ever, right? Ever. Yeah. I think it might Which be. Which seems the... weird to me. but anyway, I know. It that's... does. Because it doesn't, didn't have any supporting nominations. It feels like there could be more. But anyway, what do we learn other than that La La Land is kind of poised for a big award season? Well, we learned who is going to suffer, I guess, at the expense of La La Land. <laughs> Which is everybody uh, else. Yeah, I mean, Manchester and Moonlight both sort of limped away with one award, which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, Moonlight, I, you can't say limped because it won Best Drama, yeah. which is obviously a huge award. And Manchester won uh, Best Actor, which is a great award, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, no screenplay for Kenny Lonergan. The La La no... screenplay win, I think, was big for Manchester. I mean, that's not good. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. kind of showed that that like the love is really, really real. Yeah. And Mahershala Ali losing um, to Nocturnal Animals was also pretty... Losing to Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who is in Nocturnal Animals. Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Well, and I feel like this is the useful place to do the caveat where the Golden Globes is voted on by about 90 random journalists. journalists. (laughs) None of whom are in the Academy. How seriously do we take things like that Aaron Taylor-Johnson win? Like, I think Mahershala Ali is still very much a lock to win the Oscar. I think Aaron Taylor-Johnson does not have to worry about taking extra space on his mantle. He can just put the (laughs) globe wherever it fits, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, I think I like that movie. Some people didn't. It would be interesting to see what happens with the Academy, but it feels very globesy. It's like it there's something about it. I don't know why. There's sort of a Euro aesthetic to it, you know. Yes. And I think the other thing is that Aaron Taylor Johnson, 
you know, he's a Brit and he's been around in sort of consciousness maybe a little bit longer than Mahershala Ali has been, at least in terms of like, you know, the level of fame that they're at. So I think it was maybe just a more familiar vote for them. Whereas I think the Oscars have proven themselves over the years to be a little bit better at not going right for the sort of celebrity and and maybe more sort of looking down the line to who might be big in the future, I guess. Right. And even though the Oscar voting body has a huge number of legacy you know, older white guys. Um, They have made a bunch of strides in the last two years to bring on a lot of diverse voters, which, you know, we don't know who the Hollywood Farm Press 90 people are, but, you know, I don't know of any effort like that. So so I think, Mahershala Ali, it would be interesting if the Oscars feels obliged to sort of correct the record there. Uh, I feel like it's a rare case where they might they might take that approach. Yeah, I mean, there was a somewhat troubling optics thing with Mahershala Ali losing... Considered the front runner, loses to a white guy. Courtney B. Vance considered the front runner, loses to a white guy. Sterling K. Brown considered the front runner, loses to a white guy. That happened three times at the Golden Globes. Yeah, the you, People you versus O.J. winner was the white person, Sarah Paulson, who was amazing yeah, and deserved everything. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and but what what beat the actors from People vs. O.J. was the Night Manager, which is this glossy Euro kind of very HFPA sort of thing. Yes. So I think that you know there might be a race angle there, and maybe those things are all intertwined. But I don't think that Aaron Taylor Johnson winning really tell us anything i mean i think the sags are really good what's going to kind of decide yeah yeah i mean i see in euro that is a good no. description of what hfpa tends to yeah. go for i think we've really let ourselves kind of take a breath with the whole oscar so white thing because there were so many contenders this year with people of color and viola davis is still definitely going to win an oscar as we said mahershali probably will as well but i think this is a reminder that it's not that easy like you can't just have moonlight in the race and no. feel like that means that you're going to have a diverse slate of winners you really have to keep pushing it and it's like, there's resistance in a way well, that i think you look at the bafta nominations where Barry Jenkins and Denzel Washington both failed to get nominated and you see that there's a lot of room to work. Right. I mean, look, I feel like I'm just going to come out and say this with the caveat that I'm a white guy and I'm sure I see this differently than some other folks. But to me, the issue it should be about opportunity. And if awards are a way to create opportunity by rewarding films that aren't gigantic blockbusters, then if there's any kind of latent racism in the awards process, that's horrible for getting things made. And over and over again, you see this. Everybody's shocked now that Hidden Figures made a lot of money. It's like, guys, there's a big audience out there. They like these movies, you know, like make more of the movies. So I do think that... It's harder for me to kind of say, well, this person needs to actually win the award or else, Mm. you know, we haven't made any progress. To me, the good progress is there's a lot more seemingly diverse films in the conversation this year. And, you know, hopefully that will continue. It's kind of like, you know, keeping in mind that systemic racism affects people in all kinds of weird ways. You know, it shouldn't be about who actually wins. It should be, are there enough diverse films in this conversation? I don't think there are yet, but it at least seems to be making progress on that. Well, I think Meryl Streep's speech, I mean, Meryl Streep's speech made headlines for many reasons, but the part where she went through and kind of listed where everyone was from, where she talked about her being from New Jersey and from Def Patel being born in Kenya and raised in London and Ruth Nega being born in Ethiopia and raised in Ireland and kind of the international flair of everybody. I thought that is something, that's badge of honor that the industry can give itself even if the awards themselves don't wind up as diverse as maybe they wanted or we wanted okay so let's talk about Merrill's speech because to be perfectly honest viola's intro 
and I thought that that montage was not amazing. The whole thing was making me slightly resent Meryl Streep. I'm like, all right, fine, greatest actress ever. Right. And then <laughs> she just unloaded on Donald Trump, and I was like standing on my couch. Oh, cheering. that's who she was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she never well, said a name. That reaction you had is what she does in some of her best speeches, where she's, you know, when she won the Oscar finally, she was like, oh, her again. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. The beauty of Meryl Streep is she does that before you and, can. And her saying true. her again turned into the title of a book that we excerpted. I mean, like, she, she, everything <laughs> yeah. she says in these speeches is gold yeah she is the master of all this but i mean it's interesting it touched off a gigantic culture war you well know, he tweeted happened. about it you know as soon as she said this, gave the speech i was like overrated all right, countdown. yeah uh, yeah yeah but i thought it was great i thought what she said was amazing yeah and, and i thought she kept it relevant to the moment you know i don't yes. she didn't go off on some you know random spiel that had nothing to do with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association or movies or awards or artists or whatever. It stayed mostly kind of on message, I think. Well, and it was, yeah, a bunch of people were funny. It was like somebody said, Meryl Streep is auditioning for the role of my aunt on Facebook. But I mean, (laughs) but she was kind of everyone's. It wasn't that it was. I thought it was it was like mom coming in and being like, how are we going to make sense of this Mm -hmm. insane moment we find ourselves? And somebody had to do that, I think, in a way. Yeah. And, And address it, not just in goofy jokes like the ones that jimmy fallon did at the beginning but really put it into context and be like this is what we stand for and this is context for why you're hearing us all get hysterical about this moment in history I, I mean i think people who are in that situation are literally given a microphone you know the oscars mm-hmm. are the same thing like you have people watching you people will listen to what you say i mean people follow what actors do all the time i think you have a responsibility to say something if that's what you believe and there's kind of you know issue preaching to the choir like what are hollywood actors holding a golden statue supposed to help convince trump voters like I don't think that's the point. I think it's just kind of having your voice heard for the historical record or for whoever might be able to listen just to have spoken up when you had the opportunity. Yeah, not just indulging in an orgy of self-congratulation in a year <laughs> when that was really inappropriate. And and yeah, this whole idea of like Meghan McCain, like, well, that's why Trump's winning. It's just like, well, too bad. At some point, people have to be able to say what they actually think, yeah. regardless of how it impacts Trump voters. That's not really yeah. we're, we're the, the election's over now. Yeah. You know, right. And that's sort of that's why Trump's winning. It's like, well, what does that even mean? I mean, like, yeah, I think that's a mealy bullshit. So everyone should just like either shut up or just kind of agree with, you know, this sort of right thinking. Yeah. The reaction to the Meryl Streep thing was both kind of it was invigorating in a way to see how angry she made people. But it was also like, oh, God, this this out of touch celebrity conversation again, especially now when, you know, the president elect is an out of touch celebrity lately, (laughs) you know, so. So I don't know. I thought it was a good moment in a show that was kind of bumming me out with some, you know, upsets, but also was just kind of like dragging along. That was a real good high point. Yeah. yeah well, it's the only thing anybody wanted to talk about. I mean, Jimmy Fallon yeah. may as well have not been there as the ho- the Richard yeah. Ebert piece kind of about how he felt. What, not really the right host for the moment, which I think was a good. Well, I think it. Fallon. You know, look, he it was the show aired on NBC. He's the star of NBC's late. It makes sense in those terms, but to my mind, he's still too tainted by the hair tossling thing with Trump. You know. And then to kind of turn it around and make some Trump jokes during the opening monologue, but also keep it light, keep it fun, keep it la-la land. I just felt like he was not that good at calibrating that balance, just because it was a particularly challenging task. Was, that's a lot That's you know? a lot of needles to thread. Yeah. And it was the first award show post-election, you know, or at least, you know, nationally televised one. So I don't think it's 100% his fault by any means, but, you know, Kimmel now has 
you know, it's good that he gets to go second because he can see and try to thread that needle maybe a little bit better. It's funny what you said in your review I thought was very smart and right, which is as fun as that La La Land opener was in many ways, it's just a little too soon. Right. You know, everyone that I was with was like, wait, what is this? I'm like, oh, this is a La La yeah, Land yeah, reference. Yeah. Right. You know? By the time the Oscars are on, people right. will have had an extra month and a half to see the movie. And it's doing really yeah. well. So it's people will see it. It's serious money. But yeah. like, yeah, it just felt like, okay, so the screener havers in the room have seen it. The, cr- the critics <laughs> right. watching in the conference room have seen it. But like, you know, now, I basically went through that montage explaining every reference right. to the people in the room. Right. That's an interesting problem for the Golden Globes in starting mm-hmm. with a montage. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If they have to Although that the out. Uh, the the part of it that made me genuinely laugh was the uh, Barb from Stranger Things emerging from the pool like a Busby Berkeley musical. That was like great. that. That, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Everyone saw Stranger Things, as far as we know, because Netflix won't tell us how many people actually watched it. So another big moment was Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Who really, mm-hmm. I think, put himself back into the hunt a little bit for Best Actor with his very moving speech. Yeah. Am I yeah. crazy? Well, I mean, people are so interested in his relationship with Ava Mendez because they've been so quiet about it. Much, yeah. I mean, really successfully, actually. I think, you know, all credit due to them. Like, we don't know what their daughters look like. They are never photographed together. She didn't go with him. He didn't say her name in the right. speech, although he didn't even check her brother who died of cancer. And, you know, Ryan Gosling has developed this mystique about him. Like, the whole Hey Girl meme was kind of better because he didn't play into it that much like he's not trying that hard for your affection yeah and when he gets up there and gives a speech like that and is charming in this like, very tiny bite-sized way it gives you just enough gosling that you're like oh yeah i like that guy yeah yeah because sh- it was a short speech i think yeah. it was like 90 second kind of thing well i think the challenge for him is similar to the one that michael keaton had a couple years ago which is this is a slightly standoffish guy it's unclear, you know, he has mystique and it's unclear, is that because he's just like a selfish celebrity who thinks everybody's lesser than him? Or is it because he's actually a soulful guy who doesn't play the game? And I think in both cases, they had to kind of, with with Keaton, it was a lot of stuff about his son. And with Gosling, I feel like it was, I hate to say it, but I'm talking strategy here. You know, he had to convey, like, I have a family, Uh I care about humans in my life, I'm not just some guy who, like, thinks everyone should kiss my ass. And it was a powerful moment. It really brought a lot of goodwill. But Keaton lost to Eddie Redmayne, the guy who worked the circuit better than anyone. So there's a limit to how far you can go with that. But then again, Gosling's main competition is Casey Affleck, who comes with his own baggage and awful beard and all the other things that don't make him Eddie Redmayne. the interview leading up on the red carpet, Casey Affleck was just openly moaning about the fact that he had this beard. <laughs> and look, because, you know, that's not what you want in your Oscar audition, <laughs> looking like Grizzly Adams, you know. Right. Yeah. And I think also he's he's just a much more recessive presence on stage when he gives speeches. And he was more dynamic, I think, in the room at the New York Film Critics Circle mm-hmm. dinner because, well, it wasn't on TV and he had a sort of specific thing that he could needle, you know, the voting body about. But like at the Globes, I mean, he, you know, he said nice things, I guess. But compared to Gosling who, you know, looked dashing and gave this nice sort of feminist speech. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, what no. about Natalie Portman? I think Not I, I that think matter? that, you know, that should be a we were, were going to talk about other other like, you know, PJs and stuff like I think Jackie is is dropping fast. I yeah. I, I think that I, I think that especially because La La Land is performing so well, box office wise, and you know just won all these awards. And again, the HFPA does not overlap with the Academy, but you know people in the Academy just saw that movie win a bunch of awards. And mm-hmm. I just think that that La La Land is so ascendant that Emma Stone is kind of 
it's it's there. Well, you know? and because as we talked about last week, like Jackie does seem to have been boiled down just to Natalie Portman, which yeah. I think is unfair, but that's how it has worked out. Natalie Portman already has an Oscar. There's not this drumbeat being like, oh, well, we have to reward her. It's a great performance. Yeah. I do think she'll be nominated, but I think Emma Stone has this huge narrative push behind her, is super appealing, and in a movie that everybody loves. Like, it's got every yeah. single element, and Jackie, I mean, it's a tough movie to love. I think, you know, a lot of people yeah. haven't embraced it, and I think knowing that she has been rewarded, quote unquote, even though she had this great performance, it's easy to kind of let it fall to the wayside, which is a shame. So the PGA nominations that came out this week after the Golden Globes, which unlike the Globes, are a window into how the industry is thinking because it's the Producers Guild Awards and they are people who are Academy members. And I'm just going to run down the list of everything that got nominated for their main award. It's Arrival, Deadpool, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden Figures, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. Yeah. So no Jackie. No Jackie. Um, uh, no Nocturnal Animals, which I honestly yeah. thought was possible based yeah. on how this week, because it got a lot of BAFTA nominations it as did. well. But yeah, the Hacksaw Ridge, Heller High Water, and Hidden Figures are kind of the three that I feel like are these ascendants. Yeah. And then there's Deadpool. I think Hidden Figures, I think that big nomination, I think that means that it's definitely, I think it would end up on the nine or ten. Yeah, I, I think it would. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's got a Best Picture nomination. Well, Hacksaw Ridge is basically a, uh, it's like top, one of, it's top four. Yeah. I think it's yeah. basically La La huh. Land, Moonlight, and Manchester, and Hacksaw Ridge have been nominated for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I really like seeing Arrival coming in there. I've, yes. I've been feeling good about that. It's I think that's also good, good for Amy Adams. You know, Yeah, I mean, Best Actress, we, we were talking about Isabel Huppert winning the Golden Globe. Again, not the, the voting bodies overlap, but I think Isabel Huppert is getting an Oscar nomination. Yes. Yeah, and I loved how surprised she was. Yeah, She's you know, done that at every time. It and was I mean, so with, fun. I don't blame her know? for being surprised. Yeah. Everyone's been counting her out, and then she just keeps winning. Yeah. Yeah. I think she definitely has a good shot at that nomination. Yeah, Lion. It's great to see Lion in there. Mm-hmm. You know, Hell or High Water. I get it. And I get Deadpool because it's, you know, it's an unusual superhero movie. And that the PGA made money. being producers, they like going for blockbusters. They're yes. much more likely to nominate. You know, they don't nominate The Dark Knight. They go for stuff that's popular more than Well, other because titles. they also understand the logistics. I think also Deadpool had this kind of tortured birth essentially i mean it took Mm -hmm. a long time for that movie to get made and it fell out of funding and then into you know so i think that there was a feat of producing there certainly that i'm sure the people in pj are like oh yeah that 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 got made and then did so well and it's not my cup of tea but at least it's a different take on superhero movie which is hard to do or or yeah i mean i would have loved it if it come out in 1998 and i was a teenager and you know it would have spoken to me then yeah yeah it's a fascinating time for passion projects i mean at the globes Mm -hmm. everyone talking about la la land was like this movie was such a gamble we wanted to make it which you know i don't know that it was that big of a gamble but sure that's they're sort of grafting an underdog thing onto that sure well okay but i think i mean unless it's a lie i think the whole idea that damien giselle basically was like i want to make this movie but it's too big i gotta turn around and go make whiplash first sure sure you no. But, you know, by the time they made La La Land, it had two giant movie stars in it. You know, it, it had some pedigree behind it. But then you yeah. also have Deadpool, which we were talking about in Moonlight, the movie that I don't think anyone expected to be a big awards contender. There's some interesting, well, I, like, I, I force this into existence. Not to come back to this, but Moonlight is a movie that I saw thinking, wow, it would be so great if this ended up as the nine slot mm-hmm. at right. the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And now people are like, I can't believe Moonlight, you know, almost didn't win Best Picture. You're just like, well, this well, is yeah. good. Like, yeah. This, yeah. Moonlight yeah. is in a great place. If you're Barry Jenkins, you're love and life right well this now. happens every year I think there's the movie that you're like oh this you know Spotlight last year I mean I made yes. a bet that Spotlight would not win Best Picture because like it's too small it's too arty yeah. or, or too you know intellectual and then it went actually three years in a row with Boyhood coming in yeah. second and yeah. being that movie for me too I like, mean, please I think, let this be my like slide in there I, I think that we can maybe tribute the uh, 10 wide Best Picture field for that because you've got yes. the sense that it's more of an open race and there's a uh, reason for studios like A24 to really put money behind something like Moonlight thinking maybe it'll get a nomination and then it just builds 
build speed and build speed until and then, it's in the top three. Yeah, and then these little tiny miracle films that do rise to the top have to be so good to have risen to the top mm-hmm. that then they stand up pretty well against some of the bigger right. budget things. That would be an argument that I'd make. Yeah. yeah. I was a little bit nervous about Moonlight after the Globes just because it didn't win one of its expected awards, you know, in the supporting actor, but then was reminded that at the Oscars its screenplay isn't adapted. So it won't be up against yes. Manchester. So Moonlight actually has a pretty solid chance of winning that Oscar, yeah. possibly Mahershala, and then is in the mix for Best Picture. I don't think it's going to win. But, you know, so if it comes away with two Oscars, you know, this, this yeah. time, that would be great, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, this happens every year. But after the Golden Globes on Monday, someone wrote, you don't have to watch award shows. They're stupid. And they're, you know, I don't like that argument because I think it's been made a billion times. But look, in the case of something like Moonlight, yes, in New York City, in the media, a lot of people have seen that movie. But people watching the Golden Globes who don't really pay that much attention to movies might not have known that that movie existed. And so for that alone, I'm glad that the Golden Globes happened and yeah. that Moonlight won and that, you know, now people know about it. Exactly. So you keeping know? all of this in perspective, yeah. the good thing about award season, there's a lot of dumb, stupid of stuff course. that's horrible that we talk about. But the good thing is that it's elevating art and interesting projects that aren't, you know, a sequel to Fast and Furious, much as I look forward to it. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, to, to echo Meryl Streep, I would argue that there's more value to the Golden Globes than there is to the Super Bowl, for example. <laughs> In terms Where of will culture be an and humanity. I really yeah. want her to accept that guy's invitation and go to the mixed martial arts Me too. thing Ooh, yeah. and make a documentary about yeah. it or, or a reality yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And now our conversation with Andrew Garfield, the star of Hacksaw Ridge and Silence. So we're here with Andrew Garfield, who has joined us with his breakfast and is very kind to join us here in studio, which is very exciting. Thank you so much for being here. No, no, no. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be um, under the inquisition of um, of three very brilliant people. <laughs> <laughs> we try not to make it too much like a panel where we're throwing questions at you, but sure. uh, you know, given the it's two more mo- like a trial, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, given the two movies that you're in, we think you're pretty tough and can handle whatever. Oh, we're you. I fooled you. I see. <laughs> well, you've been really busy this week. You know, we saw you on the Golden Globes on Sunday, and then we saw you on Stephen Colbert last night as. Mm. We record this, so you're kind of all over the place. The Globes mm. were, you kind of had a, a big viral moment sitting next to Ryan Reynolds, which I know you talked to Stephen Colbert about last night, but were you guys friends? Do you know Ryan Reynolds already? No, we we, <laughs> we just met. Uh, I, I sat down next to him and we we just kind of um, started talking. And uh, yet very, very quickly, I, I said to him, we should, I, we should kiss if you win. 
And, <laughs> oh. um, and he said, yes, I think we should. <laughs> but then he didn't win. And he didn't win. And I said, we can still kiss. <laughs> and he said, let's do it. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's like, and it, and also makes, it makes you kind of think, well, why is the kissing only reserved for the, for the winning moment? Why can't it be? You're enough, whatever happens. I kind of <laughs> like that idea more. It's, it satisfied a lot of the Spider-Man Deadpool fanfic I've been writing over the years. So it was just for you. It was a big yeah. thank you. It was, it was mostly for, for you and, and those like you. <laughs> and there are many, I, I promise. <laughs> well, Andrew, one of, the, one of our audience's favorite moments was when you kind of leapt out of your chair to give an ovation to Emma Stone. Mm. Has it been emotional for you guys doing the word season together so far? How has that been? You know... It's been wonderful because we care about each other so much and um, that's a given. That's kind of this unconditional thing. Um, and there's so much love between us and so much respect. I'll speak for myself. Um, you know, I'm her biggest fan yeah. as an artist, you know. Yeah. I'm constantly inspired by her work. and I'm constantly inspired by how she ho- handles and holds herself. So for me, it's I've it's been bliss to be able to you know, watch her success and, and watch her bloom into the actress that she is. And, and, um, I've, it's also been wonderful to have that kind of, um, support for each other. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. nothing but a beautiful thing. Yeah. Because the worst season can be sort of a huge pain in the ass. It's a right? weird, it's a weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, not my words, but, um, but, but, but here's the thing. I felt it on Sunday and I said it to, to, to all my friends who were there. I said, you know, I was overwhelmed by had that I had such sincere, authentic Hollywood friends, yeah. I, or friends within within Hollywood, which I don't think is is um is a common occurrence. I, and I see there were I had about seven or eight real true anchors in that room, and then in the parties following, Emma of course is one, Claire Foy is another, Laura Dern, Eddie Redmayne, Jonah Hill. These are people that I actually love in a very sincere way and yeah. and i believe they love me back that and, and i and i'm i just was kind of struck with this deep gratitude you know including mel and, and vince and you know I, I i don't know it's uh i was just very very grateful that i got to be there and celebrating the work of people that i love and just being present really it was um really really lovely weirdly very strange to yeah. have such a lovely time yeah. <laughs> well you know even and, with all those cameras in your face right yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no i am uh, you know, and, and Mel, this is an interesting moment for Mel Gibson, mm. right? Because it's kind of, uh, there's a form of redemption happening here given mm. his controversial past. How, how's it been watching him, you know, navigate all this? I'm so happy for him. Yeah. And, um, and I'm so grateful that finally, you know, slowly the external response to him is catching up with the work that he's done internally. Yeah, that's how I perceive it. Yeah. He's he's had um, a, a number of years now where he's done that work, done that very difficult internal transformative work, and looked at himself and made some changes. And that's no mean feat as for anyone else who 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 who's done that kind of work and been through that 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 kind of um, transformational process. And I'm just grateful that finally. It feels like there's an understanding that that work has been done. That that, yeah. that you, there's a feeling that oh, this is a man that is a is a is is much more than just those very very brief moments that we know him for. He's yeah. so much more than that. Yeah. Um. And of course, simultaneously, he's one of the great storytellers in mm-hmm. film, and he you can't deny that. I I, I really feel like 
or especially with audiences and he, he taps into this core humanity um, and universal truths and makes I, don't, I believe very a nourishing meal for the masses which is a very very tricky thing to do in every single film he makes mm-hmm. so I'm very very grateful that he was the one that was helming our, our project yeah we spoke on the phone you and I once about yeah. 99 Homes and I think you were in Australia filming Hacksaw. Mm. Um, so I guess that would have been about a year ago or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how has it been sort of, I mean, managing the experience of the, these two very intense movies now that are sort of arriving at the same time? Is mm-hmm. it, are you just sort of living in sort of like the Desmond Doss emotion or the, the, you know, the sort of 17th century monk emotion all the time? Mm. Or are you, does it feel pretty distant to you? It doesn't feel distant to me, thankfully. I feel, you know, luckily both films deal in similar themes and, even though the journeys are very different, there's a, there's a similarity in how I can talk about these two films. And even more luckily, I'm so deeply passionate about these two stories and about um, Desmond Doss as a human being, everything that he was and everything that he symbolizes and personifies, especially for the times we're in. The human qualities of humility, compassion, living a life of love and, and devotion and service to your fellow man. These are the things that... that that I hope our president-elect wakes up to within himself at some point. Um, that maybe don't hold your breath. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta hope, right? We gotta hope. That this is a very point... pro-Trump podcast. We probably <laughs> should have told your publicist that you've walked into the fire now. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it, but it, and and in and in terms of Rodriguez's journey, you know, it's for me one of the the big features of what Father Rodriguez goes through in silence is that he has to abandon his ego. He has to let his ego be pulverized and decimated in order to truly serve something greater. And again, you know, for the times we're in, for these incredibly narcissistic, egocentric times we're in, not just within our personal lives, but the culture that um, encourages us to live according to these very egocentric values. I mean, look who we elected. Look at the guy that we just elected. It's, um, it's, I don't need to, you know, we, we all... Agree. It's it's a it's a terrible shame. <laughs> but do you find that in something like in Hollywood in award season, what kind of defenses do you have against that culture? Because a lot of people would say that's Hollywood's culture sure, too. That yeah. almost Hollywood invented it. Hey, I mean, I'm not going to argue that. I actually, yeah. um, the the water the water was poisoned long ago. You know, mm-hmm. um, the value system that's been propagated is 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 absolutely um, being propagated by. The Hollywood system itself, you know, you, you talk about those parties, you know, you talk about the parties after the Golden Globes or after the Oscars, and it's it's palpable, that value system, you can taste it. Yeah. Um, and depending on where you are in the hierarchical scale on that very night, Mike Nichols said something so wonderful to me. When we were talking, when we were doing Death of a Salesman, we were talking about living in Los Angeles, living in New York, and he said, why would I want to live in a city where I can tell what my stock is? according to how the valet parking attendant is looking at me on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> um, right. It's, that is a very sick kind of lost soul-searching, but looking for love in all the wrong places kind of culture. And absolutely, I, 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 it's a struggle, I'm not going to lie. I mean, yeah. just to move in those rooms. You know, we talk about you know, the collective unconscious. You, you, the collective unconscious of that city of Los Angeles is very, very specific. And you can taste it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very dangerous for the artist, I believe. So how do you, I mean, 
how did you avoid that in mean, yourself? Like, do you think it was meeting the right people when you were starting out or being a certain age when you started or being English? I feel like English actors tend to be better at avoiding all of that. We're very good at being very hard on ourselves <laughs> and not, not accepting any praise whatsoever. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, and deflating our, our um, any buildup that may happen at any point. It was, it was, that's why it was nice hanging out with Eddie because we just kind of like beat up on each other and ourselves all the time. <laughs> um, so, so that's lovely but um, and vital. And again, I go back to Mike. You know, Mike Nick Nichols always said to me, he was like, you're going to be all right because you're always going to loathe yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and He's I, not even English. I say that to Richard all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but there's something very, very healthy. And I think that it's a, there, there's a balancing act that needs to happen. Yeah, I think it is about who you surround yourself with. And I think, but I mean, I'm not exempt. I struggle. I struggle with my own version of, of, um, of temptation and seduction into the, um, the value system that that is um, so prevalent and so present that you can't escape it. It's a weird thing. It's like, you know, in, in Bhutan, they write like prayers on the walls for, the, you know, healing of the world. And in Los Angeles, we put teenagers in their underwear on the walls. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very weird kind of uh, culture that we've created and that we're <laughs> participating in. And uh, so I'm, I'm constantly asking, how do I be in it but not of it? Mm-hmm. And is that a possibility? Do you, do, do, do you get corrupted anyway? Is that just going to happen? But again, you know, I hang out with people like Laura Dern, who has somehow managed to hold on to her divine soul amidst, um, you, know, you know, her parents, of course came from the generation previous of Hollywood actors and I'm surrounded by mentors like that. And she's, I think that's she's a, a big TM thing. person, isn't she? Are she you, is, are yeah, you she's a meditator. That yeah. I meditate, yeah, I do yeah. TM and mm-hmm. other forms and yeah, I'm always I'm always trying to look for love in the right places. But um but yeah, no, I I, I need I need something. I absolutely yeah. I was I'm about to start Angels in America in, in, in London doing a play and I was saying to my friend yesterday, I said, I need a guru <laughs> to get through this. I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this i need like some support system in order to climb that mountain every night and uh ryan reynolds ryan reynolds is gonna um, <laughs> relocate and shoot deadpool 2 i wanted to ask you about angels america because you know you're playing prior correct yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that to me you know i when i was studying theater in college that play and that role specifically are just to me you know this mountain what about that specifically appealed to you was it a text that you knew well how did you approach it um so Tony Kushner, I got to know while I was doing Salesman here in New York with Mike. And of course, I'd seen Mike's HBO yeah. series. I'd never seen it live, but I had obviously read the play and knew the play. And it's I, I hold it up there with anything that Miller wrote and anything that Tennessee Williams wrote. I know a lot of people feel the same way. And I had the same feeling when Tony emailed me and he said, "I, you know, he, of course, he, he wrote the most eloquent kind of beautiful email basically giving me no choice but to say yes but it was very very easy to say yes it was one of those things that was just pure instinct and for for whatever reason it was a role that it was one of those roles that i actually never considered playing weirdly mm-hmm. but as soon as the idea presented itself i don't know the deepest part of me just said there's no there's no question no matter when that they want to do it no matter how long the run is you, you you must. It was just an opportunity too good to pass up. And then, of course, the fact that Marianne Elliott is directing it, and then this incredible cast has been filled by these, you know, Denise Goff and Nathan Lane and Russell Tovey and these great English actors, Nathaniel. I don't know. It, it's a, it's kind of a dream. I, I wish I had a bit more time to process it. So I haven't. I don't really know why I want 
to do it so desperately. Maybe you'll find out as you're doing it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. the, the, there's one line which I'll kind of mention, which is I'm, I'm, I'm 30 years old and I haven't done anything with my life yet. I think I'm paraphrasing it and fucking it up a little bit, but there's something in that, there was something in that that made me, I don't know, that hooked me. I don't know. And are you doing, is it Millennium Approaches and Perestroiker or just Millennium Approaches for now? No, we're crazy enough to attempt You're do both. both. <laughs> the whole yeah, we're doing um, Well, I'm hoping to see it. Uh, please, I'm, please. I'd love that. I'm, ex- I'm excited. There's oh, a, thanks. there's kind of a, uh, when you do a long play like that or either the movie Styles or Hacksaw Ridge, there's like a physical challenge element where you kind of, you're not just like acting in a movie or, or acting on a stage. There's, you're really physically preparing yourself. Is that challenge aspect of it something that attracts you to something? It's, you know, you can't just show up on set for five days and walk away. You have to, you know, lose weight for silence or, mm. you know, go through huge battle scenes for Hacksaw Ridge. Like, mm. do you, is there a masochism there or just like the challenge of it? I don't know about a masochism. I mean, maybe. Um, I, I wouldn't put a negative bent on it myself, but uh, if masochism can be positive, then yes. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's something I like about being totally consumed by something. I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know. There's something that, I don't know, that attracts me to, things that aren't easy and that will take all of my being and even with all of my being being involved, I'm not going to achieve it. There's something that um, is delightfully agonizing about that for me. I don't, I don't know what it is. It, it's that thing of life being very short and wanting to reach further than my arm's um, length enables me to. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I can't explain it. I don't know. I don't know if I can go back into my family upbringing and dig up some trauma <laughs> that explains why but i don't know i think there's a longing there's just a deep longing for to know to know everything and to experience everything and i get to do that with with acting and my adrenals are shot that's <laughs> that's the the main price i always worry about people who lose a bunch of weight for a role like you know what mm-hmm. it will do when you're 40 and like suddenly right. your your weight is not under control <laughs> like yeah no, it seems yeah. like it's gotta be really hard on you yeah i, I guess i mean Time will tell. I'll let you know in seven years. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get Mel Gibson to let you keep all your hair? Because I feel like that's one of the great things is, you know, there's no crew cut. And, right. and I wouldn't have cut the hair either. But did you have to cut a deal or something? Or how did you, how <laughs> that's you do funny. That? No, well, you, it was, that was the style in the 40s, you know. Actually, oh, okay. if you look at pictures. So I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant then. Well, no, I, I, I wasn't. Crew cuts. Yeah, no, it, that, and it wasn't crew cuts. It was the, 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 the guys had their hair reasonably long on top and then they, mm-hmm. they, they had it short back and sides. Mm-hmm. That was the style in the 40s. And, and Desmond especially, he was kind of obviously kind of unique and eccentric. Right. And his hair was especially kind of... Um, Kind of interesting. So there was that to play with, I guess. And how many days did you spend shooting those those battle scenes? I mean, that was it as grueling as it looks on screen? Or? It was really grueling, but Mel had no time. That was the crazy thing. Yeah. Um. He made he made a, a forty million dollar movie look like an eighty million dollar movie, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really grueling. But you got you kind of go well. I would I would jokingly kind of text Vince at the end of certain nights going fake war is hard <laughs> like like but but shut but you know it's like fuck off like right. pe- like these yeah. are people people have lived through this and yeah, less hard than Iwo Jima and but, died in yeah, in right. in this in in this kind of horror and so it was our responsibility to depict it and to live through it as much as humanly possible and again it's another one of those not enough things we're never ever going to fully honor what the men and women who serve go through 
Um, and any complaint that those scenes are too graphic or pornographic in terms of their fetishizing of violence, I, 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 I'm willing to have a conversation about that. But, but I, I, from my perspective, it was a vital thing to make it as gruesome and as horrific as possible um, in, in order to honor the reality that these men and women who serve go through and, of course, to honor the, the fact that Desmond, amidst such hell and carnage, walked out with the purest of hearts, somehow survived and saved 75 men's lives in the process. The, 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 the miracle of what he did would not have been as um, profoundly felt by an audience if we didn't express the truth that was going on around him. And we had to leave stuff out. There was stuff that Desmond did within that battle. Like after he got, his leg got blown up with a, with a mortar, he, um, he was being carried on a stretcher. He saw another guy in agony, rolled off the stretcher, crawled over to the guy started patching him up, sent him away on the stretch that he was just on and started crawling all the way back towards the ridge and got shot up again in his, in his shoulder. It's like, it's, it's like Monty Python at that point. You, <laughs> right, we, it we, becomes, uh, yeah, it's, it's unrealistic. Insane. Yeah, wow. insane. So. Wow. Yeah, when I saw the film, I, I was like, oh, you know, they kind of, they, they ginned a lot of this up for Hollywood stuff. And yeah. then I like went to, you know, and read about it. And I was like, oh no, this was like completely insane. Exactly what this guy did. I mean, yeah. wow. it's wild. You know, so he he's guided by a big religious conviction, and you know Mel Gibson is a Catholic guy, and Martin Scorsese is a Catholic guy, and you're playing a Catholic monk. And is that specific kind of religion something that you tap into in your life, or is it more just sort of a metaphor for a different kind of conviction or drive that you have in your own life? Um, that's a good question. I I don't I don't follow a specific doctrine or ideology, but I I fell in love with what it was to be a Jesuit for sure um, through this. I've spoken about him in other, in other interviews. He's probably getting sick of being talked about. Father James Martin, who's a um, one of the editors of America Magazine, which is the one of the big Catholic, Catholic magazines, and he's a Jesuit priest himself here in New York City, and just a, a beauty of a man. And after spending time with him, I'm just like everyone needs a good priest in their lives. You know, he's <laughs> he's he became my spiritual director and introduced me to all things Jesuit, and I and you know introduced me to Thomas Merton, who who was a Trappist monk and would write about um you know christianity and eastern religion and how they meet and um of course that's what marty's dealing with in silence as well and i'm fascinated by the origins and the etymology i suppose of each you know the the, the beginnings of each religion and what even predates those things which are folk stories and folk tales and the indigenous tribes that you know you can find the christ story in um in indigenous peoples um stories from the beginning of humanity so i'm i'm fascinated in that and, and it, it always comes back to story it always comes back to story making meaning to create context for the chaos and the potential meaninglessness of life uh, but there's something beautiful about the attempt to frame a life in a any type of cosmology any type of um ideology so i'm i'm absolutely fascinated by it and for me my first i guess in retrospect i didn't know it at the time but my first spiritual experience was watching a film that really was it was was watching um a story play out that i could project myself into be reflected by and feel closer to myself and all those around me a specific film um goodness gracious well deadpool deadpool yeah yeah. that's the first (laughs) film i ever saw um you know know, the the film that comes to mind which was maybe one of the first was it's wonderful life Mm -hmm. um which you know if any film talks about what in life is is meaningful is that film so mm-hmm. and then theater then i when i when i when i saw my first play i think that's when the walls really really fell down in my mind i suddenly i suddenly understood 
that that storytelling was not just something that um, was in this little screen, but actually it was done by flesh and blood people, and there was something accessible about it then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've been really busy, but has there been a movie from 2016 that's now, you know, we're talking about these awards things that really grabbed you? Mm -hmm. Any movie in particular other than your own? Oh, no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In that case, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, other than my own. Um, no, no, I, um, what did I see? I've seen a lot of really wonderful things. Goodness, I don't know which ones to talk about, though, because I don't want to play favorites in any way. You know what I'm going to, I'm going to cite? Popstar, Never Stop, mm. Never oh, good, Stopping. Great choice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that may be my favorite film of the year. All right. Um, and an underappreciated one at that. Yeah. It's a genius, you know, it's, it's Spinal Tap for the Justin Bieber age. It's, um, and the, and the songs are genuinely good. Like yeah. you can actually listen to them and enjoy them, yeah. and not just laugh. Um, and I think those guys are just absolutely brilliant. So yeah, there's my there's my vote. For Do you the, know them at all? Is there? Can we? Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. Okay, so can we hope for like a collaboration in the future? Is a... if they ask, I'd be there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you rap? Is, are you ready for that? <laughs> um, only in private so far, but we'll see. Only when I'm. No, I'm not going to go into that. Can you can you uh, see your own movies and experience them on any narrative level, or is yeah. are you just totally stuck in? Oh, that day on set was hot, or <laughs> that you had that lunch, or something like that. Um, it's funny. It's a sign of a tremendous filmmaker if they can make me forget that I'm present. And I am happy to say that with both Hacksaw Ridge and Silence, I forgot that I was in the films. Not because I was transported by my own performance in any way, shape, or form. It's just that. The storytelling was so profound, I found, and so um, visceral, and um, I, that, that I I couldn't I couldn't pay attention to all of the things that I missed, to all of the mistakes that I made. I couldn't in, in, indulge in any of the self loathing that Mike Nichols um, accused <laughs> accused me of, um, and that's a really a t- it's only a testament to those two master filmmakers, Martin Scorsese and Mel Gibson. It's hard to believe it's been seven years since the Social Network, mm. and that was. Probably your is that your first time around the awards mm-hmm, circuit. Mm-hmm. So what's different this time? I know myself better. Mm-hmm. Oh God, what a horrible <laughs> thing to say. Well, you're older. I mean, that comes with age. I yeah, think. it's just a simple matter of time with myself. Um, <laughs> no grand gesture here. Just time getting used to my ridiculousness. Um, so I think I can stay in my body more. Yeah, and I cannot take it seriously or personally whether things go my way or not. Um, yeah, I guess I, I can enjoy it more. And I feel, you know, what's nice is with the social network, with these films that we're talking about today, I feel, I don't know, there's a weird thing where you, I think we all in our lives want to feel like what we put into the world represents who we are in the most authentic way possible. Mm-hmm. And, I can safely say that with that movie, with that social network movie, and with these two films, I feel like I've been given an opportunity to express my soul, express um, um, part of what I know to be my deepest truth and my deepest self. And that opportunity was afforded to me because of these wonderful filmmakers and because of this wonderful writing and the opportunity to tell these kinds of stories. And I'm going to get to go and do it with Pryor. I'm going to get to find my inner drag queen and express what that is. Um, so I feel very, very lucky. And I think I can be in those rooms. I can be in those awards show rooms if I, if I feel like the work is representative of me. And, um, if not, it's stay at home time. (laughs) Fair enough. 
Andrew Garfield, thank you so much for being here with us. I hope that after award season you get a, some meditation or vacation <laughs> or something to get and, you out of the hubbub. And go do something with Lonely Island, you know, because you've done a lot of heavy stuff. So yeah. it's time for uh, <laughs> post, post Angels in America. <laughs> thank you, Richard. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate yeah. you having me. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That does it for this week's Little Goldman. Thank you so much for listening. And please rate us on iTunes. Hopefully you enjoyed our Andrew Garfield conversation as much as we did and want to share the news with people. You can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about award season and lots of other things. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard, Rylaws, and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Alana Milner, and thanks to Lara Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the advice we never expected from a Hollywood insider goes to Andrew Garfield. Everyone needs a good priest in their lives. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.